out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician, trombone player. It is the one and only Chris Walton, who I spoke to to find out more about life, love, poetry, and also everything else about being in an indie band from the late 80s into the 90s. So this is the interview, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years, the musical awakening. Anyway, Chris, tell us now, tell us everything. I absolutely did, mate, yeah. Um, well, I started playing trombone when I was four, um, and my granddad taught me to play. Um, but musically, it, it really kicked off for me when I was eight years old. Um, and my father bought me the Grease soundtrack um, from the film in 78, which obviously I played to death. But also at that point then, um, I, I bought my first single, an album. Um, so it was eight years old, really. Um, and it was um, hanging on the telephone. And parallel lines. Oh yes, we love that album so, so much. That's, yeah, that's that's what kicked. That's what really kicked it off. Um, and then, then basically it went from there. And then I, I've been able to sort of over the years being able to um, make a. I can I can sort of document my my life through music, so I can yes. associate a certain year, you know, with a certain band. So. After that, the, the real awakening was in 79, really, when I was nine. Um, and it, I bought Setting Suns by the Jam. Yes. Um, again, that, that, just, that just opened it. That, that just uh, changed everything, really. Yes. So, so, you, were, I, so you were just going back slightly. So you were brought up in Leeds during the sort of, that yeah, was that, the, the yeah. formative, you, you were born probably the late sort of 60s, early 70s then. That's right, yeah, seventy, yeah. Right, there you go. You're a bit, you're a bit younger than me. Actually, yeah. most people are a bit younger than me now, which is interesting. Yes, so that was good. So your parents obviously were quite, they were quite, kind of um, not progressive, but they were quite musical then. If they wanted to give you a trombone, I must admit, giving a young child a trombone sounds like a bit of a <laughs> interesting. It's like yeah. up there with the drum no, kit, you're really. Absolutely right. You're absolutely, you're absolutely spot on because over the years we said that. I picked the wrong instrument. I should have played the guitar. But yes. <laughs> um, but what what actually happened was running parallel with the music. Um, I was obsessed with football, um, and right right up until taking up the trombone, we I'd, I'd watched the FA Cup finals with you know with my dad on TV. And for some bizarre reason, when the guards banned. So I came on the pitch at halftime. Yes, you know, in the red, in the red tunics. There were always the trombones that were at the front. And for some bizarre reason, I homed in on this trombone and and just wanted to learn it. And I've no idea why. Yes. Um, but my my granddad was the musical one in the family, um, and he taught me. So I started to play. Um, when I was four, five yeah. years old. Because I remember, because um, I grew up in a very football-y house during that kind of 70s period, that you know, and um, so that was kind of my thing, really, I suppose, football. And I would be taken to um, yeah. Port Portman Road to see Ipswich occasionally because they supported oh, Ipswich. You 
So we, we, I went to see the mighty Leeds from that kind of when they were really quite mighty and really yeah, dirty. Yeah. But that was that kind of period. And I remember the 73 uh, FA Cup because they got beat by Sunderland. Um, and my brother was yeah. devastated because he loved, you know, Alan Clark. And then I remember the great fi- F- European final in Paris, I think, or France, where they, yeah. they, got, they got slightly cheated by Bayern Munich and lost. But then... Oh. Their fans got a yeah. bit kind of animated, to say the least, and uh, they got banned. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a good word. Yeah, so like they, they slightly did. So, yes, football was a big one. But did, were you a bit young to kind of follow the, the mighty leads at that? I call them the mighty leads rather than the... Well, they were dirty, but, you know, that, that, that Don Reedy... No, we, we don't... We, we like we like that. We, we, we wear that badge with pride, to be honest. Um, dirty leads, it's, um, it's summer we've laughed out over the years. Yes, but uh, my God, but yeah, I, I was actually, I was actually born um, directly across the road from Ellen Road, um, right? About about um, hundred yards. So what used what used to happen is me, my dad used to get me on his shoulders, um, and back in the seventies, Leeds United, they had a um, they had a ramp that that the, like had a big gate on it, and and at half time they opened the gate. Um, and it was basically to get the disabled cars in, you know, um, up and down, yes. and then around the pitch. So he, he used to take me over um, on his shoulder at half time um, because he was too tight to pay. But that's what I always say to him. But he used to carry me on his shoulders. Oh yeah. And, so and you saw you saw a lot of the second half of Leeds United, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, from being about two years old. So yeah. Because I can remember they used to have those blue cars, which were for all people with disabilities, mostly with lidomide, weren't they? And um, sometimes you see about ten behind a goal, which was quite weird, really. Yes. Weird to see it now. Into you see it on the footage, it's strange to see now. Yes, I know. It was quite. That was quite amazing. Health and safety was definitely out of the window. But yes. <laughs> so the trombone, which kind of. Um, yeah. I did see a band in the late 80s, early 90s that was, oh, God, I'm going to remember. Was it Snub? There was a kind of a thrash band, and they used to have a trombone player who used to appear. But that was a little bit more of an interlude. Yeah, they, um, well, to tell you the truth, where, where my, excuse me, um, professional, um, not professional, where my... Um, Oh, so what I'm looking for. You might have to edit this. No, that's I'll, fine. Uh, that's fine. I'll, I'll dig this. Um, it's the thing is when, like I say, got to '79 with with setting suns. Yes. And then in 1980, Texas Midnight Midnight Runners released um, Young Soul Rebels. Yes. And and that was another turning point for me because obviously the brass on that was absolutely outstanding, and and all of a sudden it sort of made sense. About, about the trombone. Yeah, I yes, I remember. I think that was, I can't remember, because I did an interview with the woman who was the kind of violinist called Helen O'Hara. Yeah. But I think she yeah. appears after that um, Young Soul Rebels, but I might be wrong. She, but she was definitely on the one with um, the big kind of Come On Eileen. That was that next period. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I think she appeared there. So when you were sort of, so this was your very early teen period then, sort of 83 was because, so you would have been still quite young then. Yeah, well, I was 13 in 83. So um, I'd had had an orchestral career. 
kind of thing. Well, a- amateur career. Yes. Um, so from the age of like seven, um, I started um, studying at Leeds College of Music. Um, so were, 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 were you one of those? Were you one of those kids who, um, children, um, who was almost going to be? Is it called hot house? Where where the parents go? You know, the teacher says this kid's got, got potential. You know, we should really focus. You know, they could go a long way. Did yeah. did did you have that kind of potential at the at that kind of age of seven eight, where you, you know people could see that you know there could be a career in you know music? Yeah, uh, that that definitely was so. Yeah, because. Um, what what happened was, it, 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 and I don't mean this in a nasty way, but it's, it's a very middle stroke, upper class um, community. It's the um, orchestral world, um, and I mean that with the with the nicest of, of intent, because I met some be- some beautiful people along the way. Yeah, but wasn't much scope for a, a working class um, guy, guy or girl to to sort of make it through traditional rules um so what i had to do is i had to um I'd pass a scholarship every year um that i took at the leeds college of music and and then basically that then took me on to the next step and it and it allowed it gave um quite a lot of funding towards private tuition then right god you were really so you were sort of this was a fantastic kind of um education then to sort of understand the complexities of music um, which eventually becomes part of the sort of signature sound of the the band a bit later, isn't it? Really? Yeah. It, well, it, it certainly is, but um, but we never it would never thought it would never meant that way because, um, like I said, my my musical journey along the way, I um I, again in eighty one, um I have, I have an older cousin who's similar to yourself, and he was a DJ at Radio Luxembourg. Excellent. And yeah, and we used to go. We used to go visit um, him and his mum and dad, um, because I lived on the other side of Leeds. Yes. And he had an absolutely massive collection um, of seven-inch singles. Um, called him Stephen Brook. Right. Um, and he, and he, he went on to um, big uh, do big uh, things at ITV and BBC. Um, but what he, what he allowed me to do was just every time we went up, he'd, he'd let me just take as many seven-inch singles as as I wanted to. My God, that's handy. So what that did, yeah. So that so that gave me a so I just soaking everything up really, you know, mm. around that time. So when so with the with that kind of period, because because being a bit older, the eighties is such a formative period, you know, the the whole sort of the world that you know, because you know. I remember, you know, the seventies with the political kind of comings and goings of various people. Then, then seventy nine, you know, Thatcher gets in, so she's she's very well sort of embedded in number ten. And then we have the Falkland War, and then we have the miners' crisis, uh, the miners miners' crisis. Then we have Greenham Commons, so we all think we're going to be nuked. And then we have, and sort of as the eighties progress, we have Red Wedge and that kind of angsty, but slightly whingy. I was very whingy eighties um, period, and and getting very oh yes, because the Redskins appear who are my one of my favorite bands and they also have a brass section yeah. don't they yeah and again a, a brass section that's for me used to absolute perfection yes um it's but even even going back slightly before that david to um when when the jam the last album out that um 
that was completely written with brass in mind. Yes, the bra- uh, yes, the beat, beat surrender. Jesus, that's such a good song. Yeah, they, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and all the all the brass, you know, on, the, on Precious and and Circus and everything. It were um, so that for me, we're like we're almost like a like a validation that it were okay to, to be in a, um, a, a a strong sounding, passionate band. But with a trombone. Yes, well, I obviously that's Paul that's Weller was getting frustrated with the the three piece, so that's the that's the style council yeah. with their kind of new sound, really, wasn't it? Yeah. So right. what? No, so what was I your mean, what was the first gig you went to? I know you were sort of obviously playing lots of orchestras and and probably going yeah. to those sophisticated moments. But what was the first gig you went to? Yeah. So so like I said, running running alongside the the. The orchestral part is is the literally like the musical journey. Um, the first gig I ever went to again, I was really lucky because the guy um, who lived up, up our street, I was friends with him, his son, and he was the um, he was a caretaker for the Leeds University <coughs> refectory. Oh, is that where the Who played that time? Yeah, that's it. You got it. That's you got right. a, a blue yeah. plaque. Live, it's where Live at Leeds album was recorded. Yeah, splendid. Yeah, um, and, and it was, we, we saw um, the first gig we ever went to with Depeche Mode, um, oh, which was there. And yeah, like I said, I've got and uh, that's another band that's I've followed all the way through my yes. musical journey as well. Yeah, you lucked out on that one as well. Actually, to be honest, I was so uptight yeah. that I didn't. I dismissed a lot of um, the new. I thought new wave electronic bands at the time, but now I sort of realised there was more artistic integrity than what I gave it for. But it was also tricky during the eighties because even if you wanted to listen to something, it wasn't possible, and you weren't just going to be able to afford to buy random records. So you had to make no, a qu- absolutely the nail on the head there, Dave. You had yeah. you had to make it a choice. Like, you did have to make a choice. <laughs> We've laughed about it so many times, sort of my, my musical mates, that back then, if you, if you liked the jam, you couldn't listen to punk. Or yes. you couldn't be seen to be listening to punk. Um, but, but you know, I, I was soaking all that in from from Sex Pistols and Clash and everything. Yes. So I was that from, again, from a guy who lived down the street who lent me his albums. And so, but, but like you say, it won't. It, it, it would it were frowned upon to um, to listen to certain types of music if you like if you like to other sorts of music like say heavy metal or yeah well I come from a, a, a country background in East Anglia so it was very rock and rock oh. it was really rock it was basically heavy metal but status yeah. quo status quo were the band that you just didn't say anything bad about because yeah. you get beaten up but you yeah. really really <laughs> could you couldn't like anything that was two tone the beat or the specials because again you were a, you would just be chased down the road and beaten um, which was good for you so it was very tribal at that stage but it was all right. You know, you just had to, you had to be a bit cunning and not, yeah, not, that, not appear to be that. enjoying mirroring the bathroom, basically. Uh, and again, coming coming to those two bands there, um, I, I just can't stop it by the beat. It's, it's in my top five all time album. Yes, that is music, um, musical perfection. Album. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So wait, so though you were, were you at this stage, like say eighty five, which means you were fifteen? Were you still having a twin career potentially of like the classical band as well as being obsessed with pop music? Yeah, yeah, I am. Um, like, like I said, I um, the scholarships also opened up um, to the national orchestras then. 
So in 1980, um, I I was taken into the National Children's Orchestra, um, which which then saw me through two years. And then after that, I, I joined the Leeds Youth Orchestra. And then after that, the National Youth Orchestra. So it was all, it was almost like I was living in this orchestral world, but I, I had my Walkman with me, with, yes. uh, with like 500 tapes listening to, soaking up everything else that were going around, you know, on around me. Yes. Um, but it was very similar to what Helen O'Hara had. She was like, I think she, she was actually went to university to study kind of classical music and was yeah. going to be in an orchestra. But then it was like, you could also be in Dexie's Midnight Runners if you want. And it was like, oh, great, I've got to make that decision. We, so yeah. she, you know, she did. So, um, you know, and then had the romance with Kevin, which was fun. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, as you could imagine, being in a band and in a relationship. But, yes. Yeah. So then, so when did you, when did sort of being, you know, because I've just always been a pop kid fan, punter, when did you start thinking about being in a band which wasn't a classical, you know, classically driven? Oh, just before that, what was your kind of go-to classical albums or composers? I never listened to them. This is this is the real I- irony of it, is that I never listened to orchestral music. Right. <laughs> that was the thing. It, what about, it, what it about your grandmother? But what about your grandmother? Didn't she like My grandfather? It? Yeah. Yeah. But um, no. I, to be honest, I never I never really listened to any orchestral music either by myself or in their presence. Mm-hmm. Um, I know my, my, my granddad was in, into brass bands more than orchestral. Yes. Um, but obviously, when I then sort of made a little bit of a um, advancement in in the orchestral side, then he, he started to um, turn to the orchestral stuff. But I, I've never listened to it, David. No. No. God, that's fascinating. Uh, and and yeah. got it. So your apprenticeship in the classical world, you were definitely going from one one sort of stage to another quite progressively. So then 85, 86, this is when you sort of yeah. got to 16, probably. When, what happens then? Well, I um, I actually got, as it sounds, because you could only be in um, the youth orchestras up to a certain age. Um, and like you said, it was like 16. Um, so coming coming to being 16, there was like a gap between 16 and 18 when I didn't really do anything. Um, and that's when the when the taxis formed with, with myself in it. Yes. Um, in 88. Um, but there was like a two-year gap when I wasn't really doing anything. Um, yes. But yeah, kind of. It was strange because I, I didn't fit into the orchestral world. It was it was really strange, and and again I say it with fondness that it, working class people it's it, it it it's a lot better than it used to be. But back back then it was, you know, we we were seen as like some social experiment or something <laughs> like that. Yes, it's you tricky. Know. It is tricky because, you know, yeah. having a you know working yeah. class background, my parents were very, very working class and their grandparents, you know, used to be kind of, I don't know, they used to, one side lived, uh, had to work in a stately home and 
do all that kind of kitchen work and garden work were basically slaves and um yeah my dad's side you know they just struggled yeah. you know if you're working class you just that's it really that's there's not much i mean my parent my mum talked about saving money recently when we were talking about saving money last year thinking about you know all the energy costs and prices and she was like oh yes and she said yeah that as an idea you know as an example said we used to we used to half our matches you know so that they would go twice as far and it's like you halved your matches you mean you literally got a razor blade and halved them to make sure they lasted and he said yeah that's that was what it was like in my childhood it's like oh okay a bit different now then um so it's amazing isn't it so but i think older generations just may do on very little really little so um yes i I don't think we can even begin to um think what they went through you know that those my my grand my grandparents and their and their parents it's um well, we won't be where we were. We certainly know that, don't we? Well, yes, I'd be well dead. I'd, my asthma would have killed me years ago. But also they just had like one bath a week and they had to share that in, in a tin bath in the living room. You know, that yeah. was like, that was it really. There was no, there was no like comforts. You didn't, you know, God knows how people survived. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so look, let's, let's, let's hate the aristocracy. No, look, so yes, the classical world, it is tricky. And also when you're young, it's very intimidating because I just hated anybody who looked wealthy. So, yeah. So then, sort of. So how how did the band? How did you become part of the the taxis? Right. Well, that's that starts. If I if I start at the beginning, it's probably just to sort of set a few facts out. Um, the the band the band actually formed um, at a place called the Market District Boys Club um, in Leeds, and that that was um, basically what it said. It was it was. Um, a club that ran boxing gyms, and um, I believe a lot of community service were, were served there, and that sort of thing. Um, but you, if you were artistic, you, you, you tended to draw to it as well. And and, and there was a there was a group of um, sort of Leeds, young Leeds lads um, from from various sort of parts of Leeds, and that, and that's how they all got together, the Market District Boys. Um, club. and then and then the taxis were formed there right um, and they they gigged round about 87 um early 88 and then i um i knew we, we i had a mutual friend with the singer mick roberts yeah um uh, called eddie wells and we and we met outside a pub one saturday night um, and Mick invited me me to go down because he, he he he'd been into his music from a young age, similar to myself, um, and obviously appreciated brass in in certain you know the certain indie bands in the early eighties that he was in. Yes. Um, so we, I just went down for an audition, and uh, and then that was it. Then we we sort of took it on from there. Yes. Had they released anything by then, or was that first single flexi disc lies? Was that still to be um, recorded? Yeah, but um, they they've not recorded anything um, that I know of. I yeah. don't think there's anything recorded by them yeah. without the brass. I could be wrong. 
Because the um, other day, actually, well, yeah, this week I did an interview with a guy called Larry Stebbins, who was in Working Weeks. There was that London sound, which was quite different, but it was more of a, he came from a very jazz background and and soul yeah. and think, yeah, actually just jazz, basically. And, um, yeah. But he did like soul. But he was in those kind of bands like Working Week and obviously we had Sade yeah. as well. Did you, did you also, and there was a producer called Robin Miller who did both of those albums, or at least the, the famous ones. Did you also have a fondness for any soul kind of music at that stage, or was it mostly kind of more punky pop than... It, it, yeah, I've, I, I did listen to um, bands like Cool and the Gang, um, Earth, Wind and Fire. Yeah. Uh, and that... But not to, an, not to an extent, but the way... That when, when Mick put, put it to the rest of the lads that about the trombone joining, uh, the lads were massively into Factory at the, at the time. Yes. Um, the Factory bands, um, Daruki Column, um, James. Was there a certain ratio? And... There you go. That, that's the link I'm just coming to, yeah. And then and then the, li- the link that seemed to seal it a little bit was um, Scotty was massively into his, his Factory. Well, he was a bass player. Um, and Section 25. Oh, and, yes. Like you said, ACR um, had brass in there. So I think that's actually what, you know, the thought, well, we'll give it a go. Yes, absolutely. And, 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 also, and also the fans' early early releases, oh, God, yes. Minds and and that sort of thing had brass in it. Yeah. Um, so I think that weighed them a little bit, but we, we were nothing like any of those bands. Or it no. Were, um, it was... It, it was a different, completely different sound. Yeah. Did you, because um, at that stage, kind of one thing I noticed, you know, that apart from the amount, amazing amount of bands and it was a, each one had a little kind of micro scene going on, whether it was goth or narco-punk or the new yeah. Paisley, but there was kind of the the indie world that I loved so much, but, you know, and the Smiths were my band, I suppose, or one of them, and that was yeah. um, between, you know, 83 to 87, there was definitely a period of fantastic indie pop by the Smiths and various, oh, and all the bands like the Mighty Lemon Drops and the June Brides and the Primitives and stuff like that, but then when the Smiths broke up in 87, um, there seemed to be a little bit like, oh, that, that kind of time has gone now and then ecstasy comes along and that changes things quite a lot really because suddenly there and there's a new wave of those 16 18 year old kids who are coming along so all the people who were with the smiths in the early period of sort of ancient they're in their early 20s and or mid 20s and and they're kind of moving on as well um did you was that with the band the the taxis did did that kind of world of the dance scene and and ecstasy did that play a factor in starting to shape the sound of of your sonic sort of soundscapes? It, it, it's strange because um, mem- members of the band, Scotty on bit was a bass player and Scully the drummer, um, and Gas to a certain extent loved dance music. I mean, the, I mean Simon Simon's gone on to be a successful DJ, um, and he he actually. Promotes um, festivals in in Europe now, um, and they were massively into dance music. Whereas I I I can't stand it. I'm, I'm, I just don't. I've ne- I never ever got hold of any part of it. Um, the closest I got to it was, was New Order, really. Yes. Um, 
the lads were definitely into it, yeah. Yeah. Which um, which shaped, but it didn't shape. It, it didn't. It didn't have anything to do with our sound, though. It was strange because everything around us were were, were being um, like off on the offbeat, baggy and loose. Um, whereas when when we when we played a gig or when we wrote a song, it was all you know full on. It were it was an experience, you know, like. Uh, you left everything on stage when you played it, sort of thing. Yeah, it was quite. Yeah, it was quite a, a driven sound. But you, so when you passion, came, passion, passion it was a lot of passion, wasn't there? There was. Yes, it was. It was definitely intense. Did it, so when? What was the first studio experience you had? Was that recording give give in? Uh, no, the first the first single we. Um, Recorded was the, uh, the the Just Good Friends EP, um, and that it was a four four track EP, um, and that that was the first single that we we recorded. Right. Um, and like I said, when when we when we did the writing and recording, um, the the actual writing of the songs um, were written as a band. Yeah. Um, with that uh, with. Nine out of ten of them came from a, like a jamming session or whatever, um, and and so both legally and factually, the um, the, the band wrote the songs um, and and Mick wrote the vocal uh, tune obviously and also the lyrics, which he um, it was fantastic lyricist. Yes, um, if you he. he, he it was, it was it actually well it was more of a poet to be honest more than anything else yeah. and and his songs dealt with with it, not just about you know getting off your face and and you know and and partying or partying party your life away he, he he actually wrote about real subjects um so when we went into write uh, to be called just good friends that's um, how, how we how we did it? Yeah. Did you did you on was it Stolen Records? Who was there? Was this a kind of um, a Leeds label? No, it was our label. Um, at, the, at the time, it, it, it was a it was a strange time start for indie music. <clears throat> um, what, what, it, it was actually real. It, it was a period of, of real real indie music. That's a rough trade, yeah. Um, and factory, then there was nothing sort of. Well, there were huts as well, I think, but there was there was no indie label, so we 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 just started the label ourselves. Yes, because I think um, rough trade had got the the problem with their. I don't know. They they'd had that financial issue, hadn't they? And that took down the cartel and various other things. I suppose there was Creation Records. Did they ever sort of? Were you ever interested in in sort of? Yes, trying to get um, any deals, or, or was it just like easier to start your own label? Well, at, at the time we were we were being helped by, um, who then became our manager, um, Al Neville. Um, he, he basically started the label up, so we could just you know get something out, and we we he got together with a, a guy in Leeds who was known as Market Dave, um, who put a cash injection into it to to bring it out and. And then that that was the first EP. It was all self self funded, and and the um, 
so stolen records is is just the the Bridewell's label. Yes. Really. And what was Wood? Because you recorded this in was it Woodhouse Studios in Leeds? Was this was That's this right. was this a connection to the the manager? Yes, it was. It it works a lot in in the community with the music. Um, uh, I can't I, I can't go into details because I don't really know a lot of details as to what what he actually did. But I know he helps a lot of bands. Um, Around around that time, and we were one of them, and, and he, he liked what he heard. Yeah. Um, so he got he got us into Woodhouse. Now I, I have a feeling Wood, Woodhouse Studios was funded slightly by the council. Um, so that that literally sort of came together at a sort of a community studio more than anything. Yes, because you you also at that because as the decade changed and we went into the nineties, you did a John Peel session. Was that nineteen? God, was that nineteen ninety? You were you were sort of yeah. That was September nineteen ninety. You got a John Peel session with the famous Dale Griffith. So did yeah. you did you did um the Peel pick up on you quite quickly? It, it did, yeah. The, um... We'd, well, at one saying quite quickly, the, it was after the third, the third single was out, Spirit, um, and obviously Al had been sending tapes out to people to various record labels, um, you know, just doing just doing the, the standard, trying to get funding for the next record kind of thing. Yes, um, and he, he sent me off to Peel, and then Peel got back to us, and, and it's a known, it's a known fact that Peel. Um, John Peel, John Peel loved Leeds bands, um, and his, his favourite band was the Wedding Present. Oh God, he did. He so loved he David, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He um, he uh, just so came to us on the back of it, us being a Leeds band, really. I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like he liked what he heard. And can you remember we much about? The, can you remember much about the session? Yeah, I can remember it vividly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was at Made of Vale. We call it, we call it Made of Vale now, I think. Yes. Uh, and it wasn't until afterwards that I realised it was um, a guy from Mott the Hoople. That's who, right. Um, who recorded that. It. it went right up because obviously that's one band that I've not, I haven't come onto my radar at any point. But obviously, um, Al, Al was a bit older than us, probably about your, your age, David. Um, so he, he knew exactly who he was. Um, and yeah, it was um, it was like being in school. We went we went in and we, you know, we had to do ev- everything by the book, and it was so everything was driven by the by the clock. And it was like, and w- when you listen back to it now, you can hear how how polished it is now, how cut down it is um, because yes. we were on the clock, and, and we all felt like night school kids. If um, you know, if we. We stepped out of line. <laughs> well, most people didn't. Who I spoke to didn't have a. I mean, they they thought the result was good, but they didn't enjoy the experience, and they found Dale particularly grumpy and a bit, you know. But then that was his job, yeah. and he probably thought. But I think yes. what people what people um, sometimes think is that they actually sort of believe that John Peel's there doing it himself. <laughs> I know it's like, a strange you're, you're one. Like, you're, you're general public who sort of buy the. You know, but buy into John Peel. The sort of, I think they really believe that he, you know, he were there. I know. And he's fine. Listen, as if he had the time of the day. Really like to, yes, I know. 
I'll just record my show in the evening and be with a band all day. Yeah, that would yeah. be that would be quite amazing, really. So when you you did that, and then you did Spirit, which is another one of those. You know, at this stage, the song the songs are really strong, aren't they? Spirit is a really amazing song. I, th- I think we've got our own sound back by the time Spirit. Well, honesty, there was honesty first before Spirit. Yeah, um, and that's that's just like that's. Bridewell's party song, really, and it just—I mean, we used to we used to have a lot of stage invasions, you know, like joining our gigs and and that that sort of thing, and it was it was just one of them great little tunes that that everyone could sort of grab onto. Yes. Um, but then it came out, and it was that sounded like a a bit more serious version of honesty. That makes any sense. Yes, it does. That's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did you at that stage had you because you'd been playing with people like um, the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays in Spiral Carpets? Were you getting yeah. quite a following at this stage? Yeah, we, we, yeah, we we had the bit the bit the Leeds following from all the all the fans in Leeds, but we um, were also getting we were picking like lads up. Around the country, or coming to like sound checks and that that sort of thing, and um, and, and we had um, we had a group of lads that followed us from Manchester, um, and basically they, they they sort of nailed it when they said that the only thing wrong with our band is that we're not from Manchester. <laughs> you know, we'd, if we'd have been from Manchester, would have would have made inroads really early doors. Yes, which which can. Oh really? But but we we, we supported the um, Stone Roses at Leeds Polytechnic, um, and then we supported the Mondays uh, Leeds Warehouse. Um, but the main one um, was when we went out on tour with the Spiral Carpets on their Find Out Why tour. Yes, and that that sort of gave us a, a real experience of going out and playing. You know, like multiple dates on the bounce, you know, getting from venue to venue and that sort of thing. Yeah. So it were, it, were, it were a good, it were, it were a good time, and we were, like I said, we were forming our, our own sound as well. Were you at that stage? Had you, were you doing the band as a full time occupation, or were you still able to uh, stay? Well, I, 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 I was working because I, I, I went into printing at sixteen. Um, so I I, I I was working um, and I know Glenn was working and Simon was um, so there was half of us working and half of us not so we were still racing sort of on a night time yeah um, four, four times a week yes uh, so yeah tricky tricky business did you play Reading as well did you do any festivals we did, yeah. We did Reading in 1990 when um, the Mighty Pictures were on. Wow, yes. And we, um, it, it, it was the week, the Reading Festival was the week after the, the Peel session had gone out. Um, and some, some uh, a bit that I missed out was that when, when the Peel session went out, because it got aired twice, on the first time it went out... Um, John Peel actually called up Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Scullion from the taxis, yeah. um, the drummer, um, to have a chat about the the, um, the actual session um, on the phone. So we 
we thought nothing else about that. And when we got to Reading on the on the day we were playing, um, one of his one of his people came down to see ours and said that uh, John wanted to come down and introduce us on the, the John Peel stage. Excellent. Well, it's now called the, now called the John Peel stage. I'm not sure we were called them at the time, but. It was like a ten thousand ten, I think it was. It was a, it won the main stage, but it was a, the smaller one. Um, and he was true to his word. He came down and he introduced us um, at, Re- at Reading, and that was a that, that that was a big turning point. Absolutely, my God, the blessing! It's like having the Pope, isn't it? We love John Peel. Absolutely. Anything anything Absolutely. that he played, I yeah. was obsessed with. The Bundy Boys. Yeah. A guy called Gerald, all those bands. But then, I mean, what was yeah. the atmosphere like at the, with the band at this stage? Because there was obviously getting a lot of attention and traction and things. You were moving through the gears as a band quite smoothly at this stage, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, so we 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 done spirit, and then and then to to be honest, after that, David, it was it was all gigging. Yes, through 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 nineteen ninety, um, we, we we just played. A lot of gigs, basically, um, and I'm just, I'm just having a little look at my notes. Yes, because <laughs> you do, you record. I guess this is kind of the following year. You do, you record our our favourite song when we were growing up by Blue Oyster Cult, "Don't Fear the Reaper." So that's um, oh, yeah. What was that the reason? What was the reason for? Were you on that one? Um, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, um, there's still a debate as to, as to why um, we ever recorded it, to be honest. Um, but we, we, we think um, Simon, uh, the bass player, was massively into his prog rock at the time. Um, at, at the same time as he was listening to his dance music. Um, and, and we think it might have come from there. But what happened just before, before that, there was an incident in Leeds... Um, and it was horrific, to be honest. Um, and Mick, Mick Roberts, he he was drinking in the pub um, in Leeds, and he actually got attacked, um, and he was he was glassed in the face. Ooh. And and it went, but but it was it was kind of in the face, but to the side as well. And basically, it was absolutely horrific. It, he nearly died, basically. That's how, that, and that's no exaggeration. Yeah. He severed one of his arteries that, um, into his neck. Um, and the, the result of that, um, it, was, it was just a, it was a horrific time. Um, but we've, we've also said tongue-in-cheek that that could have been one of the reasons that we recorded Reaper. <laughs> because, like I say, he should be. Because we've always had a, we've always had a, a funny, cynical streak to us. Yes. Um, and we've, we've said that, you know, that could have been one of the reasons. Yes. Well, absolutely. No, God. I mean, I mean, if you survive those um, things, you have to you have to process it in a way that sort of sometimes you laugh at it. But, yeah, if, if it had been a different outcome, you'd have probably, I don't know, done something. Yeah, exactly. Yes, anyway. That's, but, what, that's what we do with Brits, though, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's horrendous. I mean, was there, I mean, was it just a violent, was it just an unfortunate moment or was there just kind of an incident? We don't, we, we still don't know, we still don't know to this day what, what whether it was provocation or je- jealousy or I don't know. We don't, we, we still don't know. But luckily enough, um, um, Mick was out with his cousin at the time, um, Carl, 
and he, he, he luckily Cal, you know Cal can look after himself, so he, he managed to sort of get get this lad out of the way. But if Mick had been on his own, I, I just thought I'd, I don't think he'd have been here to be honest. No, my it were really, really, it were really serious. Yeah. Yes. So did the band have to take a few months hiatus at this point? Yeah, exactly. That so which. Again, that that feeds into sort of late ninety in ninety one. We we had to we had a good three or four months off, you see, um, with Mick. But it was never the same when he when he came back. It it had really well, it had rocked his confidence. But not just that, but it, but it, it it had really damaged his hearing. Oh, yes. um, and, and and to the point where it lit. Well, well, he's actually deaf in one ear now. Um, I believe, but uh, after all years. Yeah, God. Horrendous. I would imagine you still have nightmares and flashbacks, really. Yeah. So then, ninety. So as ninety-one progressed, then, and this was kind of, I suppose, it's kind of an interesting period because we had, never mind, had sort of come out. So we were all getting very. You'd mentioned the Pixies, and then never mind. Yeah. So how was it kind of musically? Because things. I mean, you you have that kind of sound, which, yeah. there's moments where you can tell there's there's little things in the band sound that remind me of you know bands like the charlatans and and that kind of driven rock sort of yep. but slightly dance so how does how does all these kind of new scenes start to impact on the, on the band well they didn't to be, to be honest we, we, we like i said when when that happened to Mick and we had, we had that we had the break then we got back together Again for rehearsals because we we um, we played the Leeds our biggest Leeds show today um, at the Leeds Town Hall um, and we that that sold out two and a half thousand so it was we we sort of we, we felt we we'd made progress to the point where we could now like start taking it seriously to yeah. record companies and and try and and take it on to the next step so. That's the, that's kind of what happened in, ni- in early '91. Yes, uh, and then in, in in that summer, like I said, the town hall gig. Um, but then just shortly after that, um, I, I don't know that I, I think I think the 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 sound that you're talking about, uh, as far as dance music goes, came into it more than I realised. Um, and it was decided that they didn't want to go down the brass route anymore. I.e., sort of get get rid of myself. Yes. Um, which it, it was a shame because we, we we were just on the on the verge um, of of being able to at least release a single on a major label because, like I said, they've been caught been caught in this for a while. Um, but unfortunately, that didn't happen. No, because had they released you that album, Invisible to Use, your the collection of kind of bits and pieces, it was a nice bit of archive in in the early days. So had that come out when you were still in the band? It's had, it's had David. Yeah, can you just bear with me a second? Yeah, absolutely. That's fine. That's um, I'll be here humming to myself. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. So when does it, when does Invisible to You, because that's kind of the collection of bits and pieces that comes out. What month is that? Right. Well, 
I, he thinks the last gig that the band played co- completely was was ninety December ninety one, and yes. the town hall gig um, was in July, I think. I You're think. right. Um, and it, the, the town hall gig was was sort of put on to to boost sales of Invisible to You. Yes. Which which was basically the first four EPs all put together on an album. Um, to to tie things up. Yes. Um, ready ready to make that next move to a to a major label. Oh God. So that, that came out. Um, uh, no, I, I wouldn't be able to put a date on it for you. No. David, to be honest. But when um, did you, so? When did it come apparent that you were going to no longer be part of the 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 journey of the band? Uh, after, after the album, like I said, after the album had come out, um, and after the town hall gig, it was in that probably about September October time. Right. Um, that they, they said that they, wanted, they didn't want to go with the brass anymore. So. Right. Was that was that out of the blue? Or was that kind of a shock? Well, <laughs> it, it, it was in a way, but retrospectively, I don't think it was because, um, like I said, Simon had really got into his dance music by then. Um, and I don't, I don't know, it just... I mean, it, it, it hurt at the time a little bit, but looking back, it's, you know, it, it was what it was kind of thing. Yes. But then do the band break up later on in the year? Yes, they did. They, played, they brought a guy in um, called Cal Finlow, um, on keyboards, and he, he was an you know, excellent um, musician. So they went down there, the, very very similar to the farm at the time, and the charlatans, the groove, yeah, the charlatans and the groovy train and, yes. and all that. Um, and they, they played; they just played one gig at the warehouse, I believe. Maybe a, maybe a day, one day before that, but it was quite apparent that. No one had turned up to the gigs and that sort of thing. I think I don't know. I just think momentum had been lost. Yes, because it's all about momentum and you know being able to regroup and that sort of thing. But I, I, I just I think momentum had been lost, yes. which, especially with Mick being as well, because you know he, he was in and out of hospital as I, well. I you can know, imagine. Yeah. So then, what happens with the with, with you? On the next bit, because does the band reform again a bit later? They did, yeah. Um, well, I received a phone call in early '93 um, from from Al, who was the taxi's manager, um, and said that him and Mick had wrote some songs, um, and Phil, Phil Mantonera from Rocky Music um, wanted to produce it. Now the the Phil Manzanera um, uh, link comes in quite a, a bit earlier than this, um, round about just after Invisible to You had been released, um, because it was looking good for a major label, yes, um, for, a, for at least a single um, and probably an album deal. That Phil was Phil Manzanera was going to produce us that album, that first album. So obviously when when the the taxi sort of disintegrated. Um, the offer was still on the table with Phil Manzanera, um, and we we recorded 
Gate, the album Cage. Okay. Uh, down at Phil Studios, yeah, in Chertsey. Amazing. So that's Cage comes out. Blimey, that's. Um, were you pleased with the sound at this stage of the band? Uh, again, it, it, it is what it is, um, David. It was very highly polished. I mean, there's some, there's some cracking tunes on it. So, and we'd also got um, um, a female backing singer in as well, um, Michelle Michelle Jasmine. Um, and she had a beautiful voice. She still has. She's got an absolutely stunning voice. Um, so a kind, kind of a bit of a, like um, a polished out, brassed up, um, beautiful self, if that gives you an idea yes um it, it was it was highly polished but it, um but everything was at the disposal of the studios absolutely incredible because it was it was built onto his house um and yeah so that was that was yeah but then i mean this is part two it doesn't last long does it it's it's kind of over before it's it, almost begun yeah it was quite a part of Again, it was quite apparent that momentum had been completely lost. Um, uh, and we, we did a couple of TV appearances. And and it just, it, it, it didn't feel right. It just, the thing is with the taxis, what what was evident right from day one with the taxis were the passion that, that, it, that it was played with. And and also the, the energy and everything right from record. Yes. Right to playing live, and it, we were just too. I think the the bridles were just too polished. Really, I just um, and and, and like you say, things have moved on with um, um Kurt Cobain was just about to take his life, and 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 then everything was going to change, and with Oasis, wasn't it? Really, it was. I was going to say, did you as you sat there? during the next couple of years, did you think you could have been part of the Britpop experience? Again, it's funny you should say that because we, um, really early doors, we got to know Noel. Um, we, we just knew him back then as Manchester Noel. Yes. Um, and he, um, and I mentioned earlier that we, we did the Find Out White Saw with the Inspirals. And he was roading for them, um, and him and Scully, him and Scully, um, sort of struck up a really good friendship. Um, and he, <coughs> he, was just a, he was just a really nice lad. Um, and so we, we kind of we, we look we look back on it a little bit, just thinking if we'd have held on, you know, maybe just another year and a half. You know, I'm pretty sure we might have got a couple of support slots. You know, with the way it's that. That sort of thing, you know, yeah. when when mates look after mates. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you're from obviously Leeds, and, and people like Chumbawamba suddenly, who'd been going for most of the eighties, were definitely never going to, you know, you wouldn't put any money on them doing anything, and suddenly they they become this huge band with this anthem. Yeah. You know, suddenly, I think the John Major years was just like, you know, music went into a complete kind of any, you know, everything. Everyone's so. Happy and gay, clapping, clapping for the love of it, waiting for new yeah, labour to appear. Yeah, absolutely spot on, David. Yeah, yeah, absolutely spot on. Yeah, it did. I mean, to be honest, most um, people, it, most people in the band, and if they had a pulse of some description and could stand up and look kind of cute, they could get on top of the pops at this stage, couldn't they? 
Yeah, exactly. But it was, I mean, it, it needed Oasis, really. <laughs> that's, I mean, I know a lot of people, it's, it's quite easy for them to say, but that's exactly what it needed. It was like a reset button yes. um, in that ball, wasn't it? It was. So then when the band, do you know when the band closes for the second time, is there a moment where you all sit down and have a chat or do you just stop communicating? No, no, there was, there was, um, no, there was absolutely no um, malice or anything like that. No, it, it was just quite, it was quite apparent that you know we we could be doing other things. Yes, with this time sort of thing. It was, it was, it was, um, and Chris, uh, Chris Harrop, the bass player, went on to form Black Star Liner, oh, a band called Black Star Liner. Yes, with uh, with Chock, uh, a guy called Chock, who was in the Hollow Men. Um, and and then uh, Keith Manasso was the drummer, was a fantastic drummer. Um, he he sort of went and did his his thing um, with dance uh, dance school. You know, he, he started teaching, and so it, it was all it all just sort of slowly just folded, really. Yeah. Okay. So you no passion, no passion, no passion there anymore. The ones. Yes, it was more of a, a communal moment of apathy, yeah. and um, yes, it's a tricky one, isn't it? But anyway, at least did Leeds win the uh, league league championship during the nineties? They did, yeah, yeah, ninety one. Yeah. That was it, the Eric um, it, the Eric Cantona season. That's right, yeah, that's and, right. Yeah, and then you it. sold him. What was that all about? That was so weird. Yeah. Well, the. the, the... There was a few stories going around, which I probably I, I won't say for libel. Really, yeah, but. let's not let's not yeah. go there. But but, <laughs> well, but it was like because because Alex yeah, phones well, I, I, Alex phones doesn't he to inquire about one right. player, and then he said, "Well, you can have yeah. Eric, who's yeah. only our best player, and we'll we'll win you loads of games." So he went, "Oh, okay, I'll give you a million. It's like day on deal done. Have one of the great players that's of all time." The exact story, David. Yeah. <laughs> yeah in the nut- in a nutshell, that's exactly what happened, yeah. Yes. Who was he trying to sign? He phoned for someone and then ended up buying Eric by mistake. can't remember who he was inquiring about. Anyway. Oh, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's annoying. Oh, that slipped me. Yeah, I can't remember, but he didn't want we Eric. We can't, Google, we can't Google it while we're live on it. No, we'll have to watch one of those interviews where he just smiles thinking that was the best purchase i ever did in transfer so then what happens to you once the band has finished do you do you continue on your career in the printing world or do you go elsewhere yeah i, I stayed in printing um but i i, I taught for a, for a good while um i did some private tuition for a good while um but then after that it just slowly i became what it was it, it, after after the the bridewells folded I actually went back to being a music fan um, yes but without without sounding like a knob in any way but we had um we had picked up a few good contacts you know along the way um so i just used to sort of get on guest lists and and that sort of thing so yes but you I, you you taught music to young people aspiring to be Trumpet, trumpet players in mostly classical. Well, that's it. Uh, yeah, that, that's the thing is, I, I was yeah, I, I was teaching them 
kind of the basics more than anything. But it, 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 it'll always be attached to brass bands or orchestral work. Yeah. And there's, there's very few bands who have used it, you know, like uh, as a tool like we did. I mean, all, I mean, to, to be honest, I've always seen it as it was just a unique selling point. That's 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 what that's what it was for the taxis, and it and it got and it and it managed to sort of galvanise a bit of a sound. Yes, I can't remember. Was it? Yeah, that was. I mentioned at the beginning there was another band, that thrash band called. Is it Snub? Or oh, God, Stuff? Snuff? Snuff? That's it. That's the band called. Snuff. And they had a, a, a interesting trumpet, a trombone player as well, called Oliver Stewart. I just googled him. Um, I think he's the current one, but they might have had others. No, it seems like he's been the only one. Yeah, but they were very thrashy, and they, yeah. So it was, it was not quite used in the same way that you did, where it's very much embedded in the music, like a brass instrument. Yeah. This was a little bit more of a, yeah. a kooky, slightly amusing kind of musical kind of moment. But yeah, snuff. That's the band. Yeah. Yeah. So um. So then. So then. And then was um, in 2013, or a couple of years before that, it was decided that we were going to bring a box set out, um, which had all the recordings of the taxis, um, of the Bridewells. Um, and Mick had, a, had another band called Home. Yes. And it was going to be a five CD collection. Um, and it was actually released in 2013. Fantastic. Uh, and the main man behind it was a, a guy called Tim Hartley, who, who is a, a, well, his awakening was actually at the Reading Festival that we talked about. He, he first saw us there, um, and he was an absolute, you know, fan ever since. Oh. Um, to, to the point where he wanted to get a box set released. Um, and so him... Um, Al Neville uh, and Mick, Mick Roberts all got together and released the box set, um, and it's a it's a fantastic piece of work. Oh, fantastic! Yes, so Tim. Tim's the person I've chatted well that's, chatted to. Yes, he's your yeah. he's your kind that's, of agent. Let's face him, it. Man. Yeah, he's your man. Oh, so this is a work of art, which is um. Because none of your work is available on the on the on the world of Spotify, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I've I've tried, and I've I've even tried my um, the guy that I spoke about earlier, Stephen Brook, the, the the cousin of mine. He, like I say, he worked in the BBC and and ITV really high up. Yeah. And because if a new band comes along now. Uh, and wants to put the work onto a streaming service, it's very, very easy. What the hard bit is, is if you've got a back catalogue that you want to put on, then it's an absolute nightmare um, and really, really difficult. Um, and an example is um, a couple, a couple of weeks ago, I, I found out that Ron, Ronnie Wood has been trying for five years to get his stuff on uh, Spotify. Oh wow! He's been with the stones and that sort of thing, but because it's so embedded into legal contracts, and there has to be a twenty-five lawyers involved, and and the rest of it, it just it's just it's well, we won't be able to afford it anyway. Oh no! But just so embedded in in the labels. Right, I got you. I got you. Yeah. 
It is tricky, isn't it? I suppose. There you go. Yeah, I think probably some people, all the people sort of put it on things on Bandcamp and just say, well, you know. Yeah. Not for financial reasons, but they just would like to archive it in some place. And it's almost like, well, if someone wants to sue us, they can, but there's no money, so that's going to be a waste of time. But I think, I don't know, it's a tricky one, isn't it? You don't want to, you don't want to have sleepless nights, but at the same time, sometimes. Yes. Exactly, David. Yeah. It's, it, the thing is, you can be so frightened on, on you know, doing something and, and then it being legally not. Yes. It, it, like, like I say, the, the songs of the, the Bride World Taxi, the songs were written by the band. Um, six people. Yeah. Uh, and then the, vo- the vocal um, melody was written by Mick Roberts. Yeah. Lyrics were written by Mick Roberts, so it's quite it's quite easy as far as who wrote what. Well, both legally and factually. Yes. Um, but it's just so difficult on the streaming side of it. It's just, it, I'm, I'm just so pleased that Tim did what he did because I know Tim had a lot of sleepless nights <laughs> over putting that box set together. Yes. I, 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 I do know that for a fact. Yeah. Um, what 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 came, what came of it was. Well, I'm I'm proud to call it part of our work. Well, absolutely, and you've got you've got everything there. I know there's another guy who does this label called the Precious Recordings of London. I think he's been doing it for two years, and he's been putting out John Peel, Janice Long sessions from the late '80s and early '90s. I think, I think, I mean, to be honest, it's fantastic. But my God, what a labour of love! And yeah, Yeah. dealing with all the kind of um, who owns what and yeah, you need to basically have a degree in law, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you got yes. Anyway, so that's yeah. So that comes up to the modern, the present day. Is basically you, you vaguely archived it, but um, it's it's still hard to get hold of, isn't it? Is it available from all good record shops and online? You know, the actual physical product. It's not. No, it should. It should have. This is a bit that wasn't done right. Really, it should have been um, sort of put out to. Um, to distribution really but it was it was done as a cottage project yeah the only place you can get it from is is via mick roberts now the singer oh that's such a shame because to be honest what i've noticed in this show is i think i think when things happen in the moment we take it for granted and then we get on with our lives because you have to leave home one day and then you um, I don't know, 20, 30 years later, have a slight reflection. I mean, it's not all about the rose-tinted sunglasses. I think sometimes you just have an opportunity to do a bit of critical reflection. And what I've noticed that, you know, a lot of um, bands have been looking at their work and wanting to archive it and put it out there and not worrying about the money. It's just like, actually, it's just going to all get thrown away in, a, in literally in a skip when we die. So let's let, let's yeah. put it out there and do it. And also there's been a lot of photographic books. Everybody's been writing their book. There's lots of films that have come out. And then there's, so there's been a real wave of stuff that no one was interested in, especially the 80s stuff. Until about five, no, about three years ago, and suddenly there's this kind of literally tsunami of kind of stuff happening, and it's coming left, right, and centre. And I don't think people wanted to even think about what they did in the eighties. And then suddenly it's like, okay, let's let's revisit it. And I, you know, and as you probably realise, you know, people get emotionally bruised through that time, and and then only it takes only thirty years to process it and think, oh, I don't know, I quite enjoyed it. 
someone, you know, we we had one or two moments which, you know, you kind of try to let go of and you need to if you want to just enjoy the rest of your life and enjoy listening to the sound of the band. And, uh, you know, it's been it's been very recent. I find it's been a really recent thing that um, there's been so much interest in so many obscure bands. And having those Spotify is a bit of a rubbish thing at times. It has introduced, it's allowed people from all over the world to suddenly find these yeah. obscure bands that would just yeah. literally get forgotten. And you suddenly go, well, you know, we're big in Thailand or, or you know. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, absolutely, I absolutely agree because when Tim, Tim started the, the Facebook page um, in, round, I think it was around about 2013 when, it, when the box set were released, um, and we just we just call it the Taxis family now, and it's and it's you know the, there's 1,500 members, and it's just you know they'll they'll throw on bits here and there about you know memories or or whatever. But what what's actually happened is it's it's allowed me 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 for one um, to sort of re re engage with some lads that we sort of met along the way. Yes. Uh, uh, there's, there's two. There's two which come to mind. Um, one, I like called Gary Davis, not the Gary Davis. No, <laughs> yeah, Gaz Davis. I call him Gaz. Gaz Davis and and Simon Welsh Norton, who, who has a radio show, and he 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 always, you know, back backs the taxes and and still plays, still plays. And so we've we've managed to sort of come. Re-engage with people that we'd, we'd met thirty years ago. Yes, and there's also um, there's a woman who does a pay um, a page. Is it the Buzz Club? And um, yes, yeah, the Buzz Club. Yeah, and that's really nice. So she sort of um, yeah, has put in up bits and written about the band. And yeah, I mean, it's it's like suddenly thinking actually it's okay to reminisce a bit and and to appreciate some of the bands. And let's face it, there was a lot of good bands during that period, and it was only yeah. three pound to get in, get in to see them. <laughs> Which yeah, is... I, yeah I was just, it's funny you say that. Morris is playing um, Millennium Square in Leeds um, in the summer, and it's seventy five pounds. Yeah, bargain. <laughs> yeah, so that kind of brings it full circle, doesn't it, David? Yes, yeah, I know you. I was going to say, for that money, you want to sort of have a meal with the person, but perhaps, yeah. in, perhaps in that case, I'm not sure. Even though I love the Smiths, but um, let's not go there. <laughs> yeah. People, yes, that's the tricky. Do people, I mean, some people, have you noticed, as they get older, become a bit more relaxed and pleasant, and some people sometimes get a bit odd and a bit bitter. Have you found yes. that Have you have you found that at all? Uh, well, I have, because I, I've, I've gone for the last, for the, the first one, yes. I, I, I don't let anything bother me anymore. Um, I, but I, I do know people who are completely the opposite way, and 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 if they sort of come onto my radar, <laughs> I, just, I just let them bounce. I just let them bounce and let them flow by. Say what they've got to say, yeah, and then and then go by. Yeah. Yes, I know it's weird. That is something that you know there were friends or people I knew that you thought. Yeah, but you used to sort of love all that, you know, I don't know, right on stuff on the left. Now you become sort of slightly over on the other side, but still wanted yeah. to hang out with people from the left just to sort of be annoying. It's like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like at the, at the moment, my, my main man, um, 
we call him Lee Winterbottom. He's he, he, he he's been a friend since we were like seventeen, um, but we've we've always we've we've had exactly the same musical journey all the way through. So we keep each other tips off about bands and music and that sort of thing. So yes, and if you, I mean, just lastly, I mean, if you could have whispered something, or well, you know, just said something to your sixteen-year-old self starting out in this interesting path, is there anything in particular you would have just said? Even that, even if that person would have ignored you and said, "Don't, don't bother me, Granddad." No, sixteen. I don't think eighteen, maybe. Eighteen. What would you want to say to your eighteen-year-old self? Uh, well, it'd probably be more, more music, more musical input into the taxi um, side of things, because um, it seemed to go very, very fast. Yes, and, and a lot of things bypass bypasses you when you're in a band, and and, and it'd be to just soak up every second of of every process, i.e., writing, recording, uh, whatever photo shoots. You just make sure you can try and remember it all. Yes, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I know it's it's a blur you have to do you have to make all the mistakes and have the disappointment but you can't get it all right but then you know you have got all these amazing gigs that you played with the taxis so yeah and to, to be honest like i said it's it's a case of we never we never blew our own trumpets kind of thing um and that, dear listener, is the end of the interview, apart from a few extra minutes, but um, they, they got edited out. Anyway, a massive thank you to Chris Walton for giving me the time for that from the Bridewell Taxis. If you get a chance, do try and check out any of their material. If you're not familiar with it, obviously, if you are, you know it already. But anyway, the John Peel session is especially good. Um, this has been the C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.